Well, hello, everyone, and welcome today to worship. We're so glad you're here. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and I want to begin by looking at this Scripture passage together from Luke 2, starting in verse 25. It says, now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he was waiting for the Messiah to come, this long-awaited Messiah that all the prophets had, had told about. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, now, here's the song part of what he prophesied. It has rhythm and cadence and meter to it. So, excuse me, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, <coughs> a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You know, one of the things that I really struggle with is waiting. I just don't like to wait for almost anything. If I'm on a walk or run in our neighborhood and I'm wanting to cross Hoosick Street, Hoosick Street is a busy, busy street in Troy, I come to the crosswalk and I push that little arrow on the crosswalk there, and when I push that, it says, wait. I push it again. It says, wait. I don't want to wait. I want to go. I want to get on with my run, and so it's frustrating. Sometimes I'll find myself pushing it over and over. Wait, wait, wait. It just keeps saying wait, and I hate waiting. Recently, I was in the hospital with uh, a bout with kidney stones, and uh, I was in some discomfort and pain, and I, I pushed that little red button, you know, for a nurse or someone to come and help, that little call button, and I pushed it once, and I waited for two minutes or so, and no one came. And I was so frustrated, I pushed the button again, and I waited for probably another minute, no one came. And then I just was so frustrated, I just kept pushing the button over and over and over again. And my wife said, you are the world's worst hospital patient. And she's probably absolutely right. I recently read that if you live to be 70 years old, you probably spend at least three years of your life just waiting waiting at the doctor's office, waiting in line at the grocery store, waiting for recess at school, waiting in traffic, waiting for the microwave <laughs> to warm your lunch up, just waiting. Waiting is a huge part of our lives. And that great American theologian, Dr. Seuss is the one I'm talking about, you know, a deep, deep and revered theologian, in his book called, Oh, the Places You'll Go, he spoke of coming to that point in life to a waiting place. 
where he writes, you're waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the the snow to snow. You're waiting around for a yes or no, he writes, or you're waiting for your hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. And Dr. Seuss says that waiting place is a most useless place. Well, if you hate waiting as much as I do, you may feel like it's useless. But here's the shocker today. The Bible says that the waiting place is actually a really cool place to be. In fact, if you do a study on waiting in the Bible, you'll be amazed at all the good things it has to say about waiting on God. Now, here's why this is relevant to us right now. Advent season is a time of waiting. Now, the first people, like Simeon and all the others, they had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. They had been waiting for the Messiah to come, his first advent. But we, disciples of Jesus today, all of us who call Jesus our Savior, our Lord, we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus when he comes in glory and power. So here's the deal. We're in this in-between time. And at Advent, we look back to the first coming of Jesus, but oh, let's never forget that we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, just as he promised he will come again one day and receive us to himself. Now, I was captivated by that phrase where it said here about Simeon that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Wow. What a phrase. By the way, have I ever told you that I hate waiting? I can't, I can't remember if I've mentioned that to you or not, but this phrase, wow, it hooked me. He is waiting. This is a man who's devout and holy. He's filled and guided by the Holy Spirit. And he gets to hold the baby Jesus in his arms. He gets to speak a word of prophecy over him. So I wonder today what we can learn from this man, Simeon, and his amazing song of praise. I wonder what we can learn, all of us who are in this season of waiting. And I believe I'm speaking to many, many people today. And every one of us is waiting for something in our lives. What can we learn about the season of waiting? Well, the first question I want to ask is simply this. Why does God make us wait? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, come on. Why do we have to wait at all? And I'm suggesting to you that the waiting place is a good place because it's a place where God does a work inside of us. Because if God gave us everything we ask for and everything we desire right now, it would not bless us. It would be a bane. It really would. I think I'm talking to many parents today. We have many wonderful parents at Grace. So many children are a part of this church family, and we've got a lot of godly and wise parents. Let me ask you parents a question. Do you give your kids everything they ask for right now? You're going, are you kidding me, Pastor Ray? No, of course we don't. Now, now wait, 
Why do you not give them everything they ask for right now? Is it because you're cold and cruel parents? Is that the reason? You just don't care about your kids? No, just the opposite. It's because you love your kids so much, you know that if you gave them everything they want right now, it would actually harm them. It would damage them in some way because you know that they're not ready for that. They don't have the wisdom or maturity or the discretion to handle everything that they desire right now. So you have the wisdom as a parent of seeing the big picture that they don't see. Now go with me here. Our heavenly father is a good, good father. Oh, trust me. He knows us inside and out. He knows our every need. He knows our every desire. He knows the plans that he has for us. And sometimes he makes us wait because as we linger in that waiting place, we get changed in the process. And we discover ultimately that what God has in store for us is much, much better than what we'd originally wanted. I did a deep dive on waiting this past week, and wow, I didn't realize how much Scripture has to say about waiting. I picked out a couple of passages that I think are kind of classic. Isaiah 64, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. And here's the phrase I want you to focus on, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Can we embrace what that says? That says that God acts, God works while we wait. And that's pretty cool. God is doing stuff. Jesus said, my father's always working. And that says, look, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Let me give you one more. Lamentations says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So are you in a waiting place today? Are you willing to embrace the fact that maybe God has some purpose and meaning in you being in that waiting season. If you want a really good book on this, Andrew Murray wrote a book many years ago called, literally, this is the title, Waiting on God, Waiting on God. And there's one section of that I just gotta share with you because I think it is absolutely priceless. He says, at our first entrance into the school of waiting upon God, the heart is mainly set on the blessings which we wait for. And that's true, isn't it? We, we want things from God. We want a gift. We want a person in our life. We want a new situation, a new job, a new season in life. We want something from God. That's just natural. God graciously uses our needs and desires for help to educate us for something higher than we were thinking of. We were seeking gifts, right? 
He, the giver, longs to give himself and to satisfy the soul with his goodness. It is just for this reason that he often withholds the gifts and that the time of waiting is made so long. He is constantly seeking to win the heart of his child for himself. That is gold. So I searched my heart this week and I tried to figure out why do I struggle so much with waiting? Can I just confess it to you? When it comes down to the bottom line, I think I struggle so much with waiting because I want to be in control. I want to be in control of when that light changes and I can cross the street. I want to be in control of when I get help by using that red call button. I want to be in control of the situations in my life. I struggle with waiting because I'm under the illusion that I'm in control. Hello? Anybody with me on this? Do you like to be in control like that? Yeah. And what we learn in the waiting place is that trusting God, who's got it all under control, is the place God wants to bring us to. And that is such an important lesson to learn, especially, especially when it comes to the people in your life that you think you have control over. You don't. You don't. And so we have to learn to entrust them to God and his work in their lives. So let's ask a second question, which I think it's an important road to go down. What are the hazards, the hazards of not waiting on God? Let me give you a quick answer. The quick answer to that question is that we, when we don't properly wait, we either frustrate God's work in our lives or we miss out on a portion of it all together. That's the hazard of not waiting. There's a classic Old Testament example of this in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Some of you may know their story, but let me just rehearse it for you so we all are on the same page. God gave Abraham and Sarah a promise that they would have a child even in their old age. Let's see how the Apostle Paul describes that in Romans chapter 4. He says, against all hope, and there was no hope, humanly speaking, that they would have a child. Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, I love the way the Bible is just brutally honest about their situation. Abraham is 75 years old when the promise first comes. Sarah is 65, and it's so honest. It says, it says that Abraham was as good as dead, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, that's a major challenge. So imagine Abraham coming home one day and saying, you're not gonna believe it. I've got a surprise. Sarah says, what's the surprise? I love surprises. Sarah, God says we're gonna have a child. I'm amazed she didn't ask for a second opinion on that, aren't you? 
We're gonna have a baby. And they actually started getting ready. They started getting a crib ready and all these baby clothes. And three months went by, six months, nine months, a year, and nothing has happened. Abraham goes, uh, honey, you feeling sick? Like any morning sickness or anything? No? Hey, you having any strange cravings lately, like mocha milkshakes or bananas and onions or something, you know, weird cravings? Are you gaining any weight? Well, we'll just keep trying. And so they do. Three years go by, five years, seven years, 10 years go by. Abraham is now 85, presumably more dead than ever. Sarah's 75, still completely worn out. And Sarah brings up the topic. Abe, Abe, tell me, didn't you say that God gave us a promise? Well, you know he did, hon. We've been talking about that. He said we're gonna have a baby. I just gotta ask you, Abraham, are you sure that wasn't the night that you ate that large pepperoni pizza all by yourself? No, Sarah, it wasn't the pepperoni talking. It was really God. He really gave us the promise. And she asked, well, where's the babe, Abe? And Abraham says, well, maybe God didn't know how worn out you really are, Sarah. And she says, well, maybe he didn't know how dead you really are. You see the challenge they face? The promise of God is ringing in their ears, but there's no baby. And they're in that waiting place between promise and fulfillment. Have you ever been there? Are you there today? You felt God saying to you, if you'll just step out and believe me, turn it all over to me, I will prosper your business. But your business is struggling. You sensed in your heart that God was saying to you, turn that family issue, that one that's tying you into knots, turn it over to me and I will relieve your anxiety. But you're still a worry wart. You sense God saying, look, entrust your future to me and I will make it clear. I will direct your paths on this. But you still feel confused and like you're lost in a wilderness with no way out. You see, we all face that question. How do you keep waiting in between the time God promises and the time God delivers between promise and fulfillment? So for Abraham and Sarah, it's been a long time, and they're getting tired of waiting. And Abraham says, Sarah, have you been to the gynecologist lately? Yeah? What did she say? She said, it's hopeless. Wow, I thought she'd say that. Sarah, have you been talking to the neighbors? Yeah, I told them what you told me, that we're going to have a child. What did they say? They said, it's hopeless. And so in their sense of hopelessness, here's the hazard now, they make a horrible decision. We don't have time to go into detail, but Sarah suggests that they have this child through their handmaiden, Hagar, and they go with that plan, and Ishmael is born. But this was not the son of promise. That's another story for another time. 
but their frustration is now greater than ever and their problems just compound. And finally, after more years go by, Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been 24 years of waiting since the initial promise. God says to Abraham, it's time. This time next year, Sarah's gonna give birth to a son. And he goes home and tells Sarah, and she is so cynical by now, she says, you sure you're not eating those psychedelic mushrooms again, Abe? No. We've been playing this game for so long, all this talk about a baby, I'm not sure we heard God in the first place. But it all unfolded exactly as God said it would. It doesn't matter how big your problem is today. The question is, how big is your God? And the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were is bigger than any challenge you face today. But the hazard is that if we don't wait on God's timing, we can really frustrate God's will or miss out on a portion of it altogether if we fail to wait for God and keep his ways. God is never in a hurry, but he's never late. And the God who lives outside of time, trust me, takes his time. That's why waiting is so critical. But I want to ask one other question today, and this is where it gets a little bit more practical for us. I want to ask the question, how do we best wait on God? Because as I indicated earlier, this is not a total passive thing, waiting. If you have in your mind that it's a sort of quietism where we just sit on our hands and we just kind of sit in a meditative position and go, God, I'm not going to lift a finger here while I wait, then we're probably missing the point. There are things we do when we're in the waiting season, and I want to give you three of those today. First of all, and I think Simeon is a good example of this, we work. We continue working. Here's what I mean. Luke 2 that we read earlier reminds us that Simeon was righteous and devout, and although he was getting older, and although he'd been waiting for a lifetime, a long lifetime for the consolation of Israel, he kept on faithfully working and serving God and doing what God had called him to do. He kept on living a devout life. I want to encourage you today, people of God, disciples of Jesus, Whatever call God has on your life, whatever gifting he has given you, whatever he has called you to do, as we continue to wait for the second coming of Jesus, let's continue to work. Let's continue to do what he's called us to do faithfully as we're in this waiting season. But second, Simeon continued to worship. So as we wait, we worship. Simeon's song is a song of worship and praise to God, and his whole lifestyle was a lifestyle of worship and praise. By the way, when I say we worship as we wait, I hope we understand that goes way beyond coming together and singing a few songs. 
I, I hope we all fully, I, I believe we do, but I just want to reiterate it again that worship is a lifestyle to God. God wants our every day to be a day of worship, that we would carve out times where we worship God, that we might sing on the way to work possibly, or we would have times that we get maybe alone and undistracted every day and worship God, and we see our work as worship. And when we do that, believe me, our corporate times of worship will be more dynamic than you ever dreamed because our corporate worship then just becomes an overflow of many, many lives that are given to worship 24-7. So we work, we worship, and finally, as we wait, we witness. We witness. Simeon was a witness to the grace of God. Let's look again at this text. Luke chapter two says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said to him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed And then these are sobering words. They're kind of foreboding, actually. And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. What does he mean by that? Well, believe me, as the human mother of Jesus the Messiah, Mary carried a heavy responsibility. She took a lot of ridicule. Ah, virgin birth, yeah, really. Later, the Pharisees sneered at that idea. But she also had the incredible pain of watching her son go and die a brutal death on the cross. So here's what I'm saying. As Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, he worked, he worshiped, and he kept on witnessing to the grace and the truth of God. When it was exhilarating, he witnessed to it. And even when it was difficult, he witnessed to the hard parts of it as well, the parts that were not so pleasant. And guess what? That's what we're called to do. Because not every part of God's gospel is just goosebumps and glory. There are difficult parts that are hard to embrace. So Simeon worked, he worshiped, and he witnessed all of that while he waited. Recently, I read an inspiring story that I wanted to share with you all. It's about a pastor of a small church in Missouri. His name is George Baugh. George's story is very interesting. He grew up with six siblings, and they grew up in abject poverty in Missouri. He he said his first memories as a child are a dilapidated trailer that had no running water inside. And the only water they had was from an outside well, so as a consequence of that, they seldom bathed, okay? So they were always dirty and and smelled and so on. So a local child advocacy service actually threatened to remove George and his siblings from the home, and so the parents moved to a more adequate home in the area. But it was soon overrun with trash and debris. There was a bathtub, he said, in the home, but it was just full of trash, and so it was never, ever used. 
George said it was not uncommon as a kid for him to see rats and roaches and other varmints scurrying through the house. George said, I wore the same corduroy pants day after day to school for so long, I vowed that I would never wear corduroy again. So George's, teacher, George's teachers worked out this plan. He was to report to the janitor's closet each day before school where he was to bathe in a tub there, bathe in a wash tub, and change into these clothes that the school officials gave him. And then each afternoon, he would go back and change back into his home clothes. Well, as you might imagine, he was shunned by most of the kids, and he was even bullied by some. George was one of those kids that was just unwanted, a complete outcast. But one day, the pastor of a local Christian church stopped by their unkempt, rundown house and invited George's family to church. Now, George was in junior high school at the time, and because God was at work in his heart, he responded to the pastor's invitation. And at that church, he experienced incredible love in the people. In fact, the pastor kind of took him under his wing and nurtured him, and before long, George yielded his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he began to learn about the Bible, and soon he sensed a call to pastoral ministry. Years later, he went to a Christian college in Iowa, and there he met a young lady who, even though she was from a much more sophisticated background than his, they fell in love, they married, and established a godly home. And for the past 10 years, George Baugh has been the pastor of the Rushville Christian Church in Rushville, Missouri, where he continues to proclaim the gospel, shepherd his flock, and win others to Christ. Now that story, that story inspires me because it's just another example that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. There's an old saying I like. It goes like this, big doors swing on little hinges. Now think about that for a moment. Years ago, a country preacher was willing to stop by a dilapidated house to invite some total strangers living in squalor to come to church. What a little hinge of an event that was. But God, God used that little hinge of an event to swing a big door of transformation on. That simple invitation changed the life of an overlooked, unpopular child. Folks, I wanna tell you, the power of a simple invitation is amazing. And we get to witness to the power of the gospel. We get to be inviters. We get to say to people, listen, God has so much for you because he's changed us, saved us. He's changing our lives from the inside out. And much like Simeon, we get to open our mouths and give testimony to the transforming power of God. Now, there's probably no time when that is more crucial 
than around Christmas because that seems to be a time when a lot of people are kind of open. Their hearts are open. Their hearts are a little softer, a little more malleable. Maybe they're more open to change. So I would, in, I would encourage you to be a witness. I would encourage you to be an inviter like that pastor was. We have three services this Christmas Eve, two, 3.30, and 5 p.m. Invite someone, share the word, give testimony to God's goodness in your own life, and let people know that God has something good in store for them. As you wait for the second coming, I challenge you to keep on working, keep on worshiping, keep on Keep on witnessing to the amazing power of God. I want to close this part of our service in an unusual way today. I wonder at, at Saratoga, at Half Moon, at Latham, if you would just stand to your feet right now, please. Just join me in standing. Stand right where you are. If you're able, if you're physically able to stand, just stand up right now. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you're willing, if this is uncomfortable for you, no problem, no problem, no sweat, no judgment. But I'm going to ask you if you would join me in these moments by just extending your hands like this, just as an open posture to God, if, if this is comfortable for you. Just extend your hands. And I love this posture because it's a posture of openness. It's a posture of, that says, I, I'm open to receive what God has for me. It's also a posture that's commonly been used in prayer and worship to God. So I'm going to pray right now. And if you're willing, would you just stand there with open heart and mind to what God would want to do in you in this moment? Let's pray. Father, just like Simeon was waiting, we are waiting in a little different way for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, we want to take Simeon's cue. We want to keep on working, keep on worshiping, and keep on witnessing to your grace, your gospel, and your goodness. But we need power to do that. Would you fill us anew today? Father, would you fill us anew with your spirit? Because we want to effectively witness for you in these days. Not just at Christmas, but way beyond Christmas. As we're on the brink of a brand new exciting year, 2023. We want to walk in step with the Spirit. And so with open hands and open hearts, we receive everything you have for us right now, every good gift, every infusion of power, any renewing of the Spirit in our lives. We receive it with grateful hearts. Thank you for using us, your people, that we don't sit and wait in a useless place, but our waiting is a productive place. Make it so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.